The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville invites families to explore the newest exhibition, Building Buddies, where children are encouraged to construct, build, paint with light, and more, all in a multi-sensory environment full of STEAM learning activities intended to encourage social behaviors such as sharing, cooperating, taking turns, and teamwork. Now open at the Amazium and included with admission. For more information, amazium.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, June 28, 2023, on your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, we talk with the artist behind two massive fish you can see on an ever more massive wall in Bentonville, the inspiration behind the new mural, Lakes and Rivers, later this hour. And we'll spend a few minutes with another Latina leader in northwest Arkansas as Wendy Echeverria continues her series about Latina leaders. First, last week the Fayetteville City Council passed a resolution amending the city's landlord registry to include a section of landlords who accept federal HUD vouchers, also known as Section 8 housing assistance. Councilmember DeAndre Jones sponsored the measure, citing a rising demand for rental housing and the need to streamline the search process for low-income tenants. Landlords are not required to disclose if they accept vouchers or not. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith talked with Shalitha Parks, council member for High Point Apartments, and representatives from Arkansas Renters United about the ordinance. It's important because there are barriers and circumstances with tenants who has vouchers uh, are not able to move in places where there are accepting, accepting vouchers. And as me as the president uh, for High Point Apartments, there's a lot of uh, tenants that are faced with evictions just for sitting outside or status situations, you know, that we're faced with barriers out there. So we're, we want the landlords to be held accountable and we want them to know that we as tenants have rights. While the ordinance is voluntary and won't create more voucher-accepting properties, advocates for the resolution, like Shalisa Parks, say that this is a step in the right direction for affordable housing and tenant rights. It was good. I mean, I was thrilled, you know, to finally get the city on board to understand what it is that we're facing right now. Like, affordable housing, low-income housing is disappearing. We do have a housing crisis in Arkansas. There are hurdles for those that have vouchers, like where I live is a subsidized project-based apartment complex. So it pretty much is privately owned. And so the management company that owns High Point Apartments, the vouchers do not leave with you. And that's something I face, because I don't have a voucher. I'm I'm paying rent. Uh, When I leave, I was told that the voucher does not go with you. Uh, And those that has vouchers, it's difficult for them to even leave if they want to leave because they don't have nowhere to go. And so when they're pushed, threatened, uh, retaliated against, they're like, I don't know where to go. I'm getting evicted. You know, it's like you have three days, ten days. When they say you're getting evicted, they want you out. They don't give you, like, 30 days in advance. They say they don't have to give us no notice of anything. 
Billy Cook with Arkansas Renters United said that in his experience working with renters and councils across the state, an ordinance like this is unprecedented. I would add specifically that, uh, and we had said this point at the city council meeting on Tuesday, that any step taken is a step in the right direction. Uh, the implementation process in the future can always be made better, but any steps that our municipal government takes in addressing this problem crisis that we're dealing with is, is a step in the right direction. Al Allen, also with Renters United, says that they're hoping this success will lead to more policy changes, at least at the city level. We are looking towards future resolutions and ordinances, and we actually had a meeting yesterday where we all sat down and we talked about what some of the future options are. Um, we know that we're really constrained because the Arkansas State Legislature will strike back at us if we go being crazy and wanting rights that we pay for. We pay the price of a full-fledged functional service. We don't always get that. You know, we might, we might want to strengthen something crazy like a city code here or there uh, in the future. I'm, I'm looking forward to see what the members decide because it really is member-led. What I do want to add to that is that we are working with the city of Little Rock to draft like a safe housing ordinance. Now we don't know how much of that we can do without the state retaliating. But that's what's so awesome about having a place like Fayetteville where we can test something like this, see how it'll be implemented with the housing authority, expanding uh, knowledge about the voucher uh, receiving process for landlords. And so hopefully we'll have some of that affordable housing that we're seeking opening up while we're trying to draft safe housing legislation. And then we can try to snowball it across the state. But it, it really is uh, just the start of the fight for renters. You know, it has been a year in the making because good things take time and, and it takes a lot of courage to be here and to speak out and like think about the average renter working. Shalitha, it, you know, just came from work and she's here doing the work that she shouldn't have to be doing, you know, but, but there are people across the state ready to step up, make those changes in their cities and, uh, you know, whatever each city feels is best is what we're going to start with. But, you know, we want to expand as much renters' rights as possible. On top of the difficulty in finding landlords who will take the vouchers, Park says that the conditions at apartments that accept HUD aid, like High Point, aren't up to the codes that the federal aid requires. Leading to the other part of her work, fighting for tenants' rights, which Renters United are hoping this resolution will pave the way for more cities to add enumerated rights for renters. I'm trying to make sure that uh, landlords are held accountable uh, for me being there in that place for five years. Uh, I have seen numerous uh, mem uh, members and property managers come in and out, um, maybe one or two months, then we have no property manager. So it's just like we're faced backwards every time we try to step forward. So it's kind of hard and it's kind of frustrating at the same time. But me as being a leader, I, I work along with, you know, Billy and Al, myself, and the city councilman, Jones, uh, DeAndre. He is advocating for the tenants as well out there at High Point. So when it comes to harassment or pushbacks, just because we call out for code enforcement, then the landlord want to shoot us a lease violation, uh, just telling us that we can't have a voice or our rights has been, you know, just um, amended to where it's just no freedom to speak. It's like they sweep everything under the rug. Um, when we walk to them with the problems, it's like, okay, we'll get to it. Okay, we know about it. 
but nothing gets done. And so there's nothing getting done in a timely manner. Then it's like we're harassing the Magnus guy. We can't knock on his door if we have an emergency. Even though he lives on a property, we are told to either use the phone line or an email address to call the number to reach out to the maintenance man not to be knocking on his door or you can't sit outside or we're being watched on the monitor. So I feel like I'm in prison <laughs> and she, she's the guard. And so when we're trying to have a life and I feel like we are the uh, tenants out there, we are, should have rights, we should be able to live comfort, comfortably and safe. I do not feel safe because of the area and the situation that's happening at High Point uh, with sewage problems, you know, with mold problems, health issues. These are more problems on top of problems that needs to be fixed while they're trying to address uh, us to um, a minimum where we barely can do anything out there. I'm trying to move that to work with the city as close as I can to find a solution to hold landlords accountable because it's not our fault. It's not our fault. Uh, I asked Cook what protections do exist for tenants in Arkansas. Uh, to answer that question, if you have to wonder if there are rights for ten tenants in Arkansas, you could assume there are none. Uh, and I think generally it, these federally subsidized properties are the only locations in the place of in the state of Arkansas where you have even a, a piecemeal shot at renters' protections. Uh, on paper, at least, at the federally funded complexes, they are free from intimidation and harassments, but obviously that is much different in practice than it is. And of course, if you go to any other privately non-subsidized property in the state of Arkansas, it's it's the Wild West. And you may hear about an implied warranty of habitability, but that really only applies to people who not only can afford the cost of moving, but also the cost of a lawyer. And, um, you know, I had to wipe out my savings personally because I could not find a lawyer to represent me and I could not keep living where I was living. It was not affordable or yeah, it wasn't affordable and it was full of black mold and it was making me sick constantly. I couldn't even use my own home, which was taking the majority of the money I was working for at the time. We, we hear similar stories a lot, but a lot of people aren't as lucky to be able to even uh, be able to afford to move. And we hear a lot of stories of people being trapped, especially whenever their voucher doesn't move with them. But even whenever it does move with them, it's very hard to find a place that will accept the voucher. It's very hard to find a place that is under the cost of what your voucher will cover because a lot of these are very conservative. And, they, and the thing about these social programs, I mean, whenever we look at Social Security, stamps, any of it, we are told as recipients, that it will increase with inflation, but we never really see that. Cook adds that the lack of legal protections paired with an unbalanced power dynamic between landlords and tenants leaves renters vulnerable in the affordable housing crisis. Oh, well, generally when people don't have either the knowledge about regulations that exist at their properties or if they are at a property where there are no regulations, they're usually just left to either pick up the pieces or let themselves be evicted or they can try to fight it, but they will most likely lose. That was Billy Cook and Al Allen from Arkansas Renters United and Shalitha Parks, council member of High Point Apartments. They came to the Furman Garner Performance Studio to talk about their advocacy for transparency in HUD vouchers. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith.
A new episode of the KUAF podcast, The R Word, is available now. This time, hosts Lowell Taylor and Dustin McGowan talk with Dr. Soon Chan Ra, author of Many Colors, Cultural Intelligence for a Changing Church and Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. This new episode and all R Word episodes can be found at KUAF.com or wherever you already get your podcasts. For a year now, the KUAF Lunch Hour has been bringing you the best in local music and local food once a month here at the KUAF studios. Now we're taking it on the road. KUAF is partnering with local McDonald's owner-operators to bring you the KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series. It begins in late July and will include three tiny desk-style concerts that will take place at different McDonald's locations across northwest Arkansas, the River Valley, and the Green Country. These three concerts will lead up to a mini-festival called Lunch All Day in September. Performances are set to include Steph Simon of Fire in Little Africa, country singer Joe West, and artist-designer Tylo May. Get ready for a summer of fun, music, and great food. The KUAF Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, sponsored by McDonald's, begins July 28th. Keep listening to KUAF, your public radio station, for more details. Later on this edition of Ozarks at Large, Trevor News' composition Cohere One was recorded with the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas and three quartets in other parts of the world and six soloists also in other parts of the world in one performance. Our uh, remote or virtual, or I like to say network participants because we all have our own spaces, uh, we're coming in from uh, well, New York City and uh, Brooklyn and uh, London two places in London, uh, Los Angeles, Berlin, Germany, Argentina, Buenos Aires, uh, Kolkata, India, uh, Uganda, uh, and Korea. How the recording worked and why Trevor New created the music later on today's show. This is KUAF. A listener from Bella Vista recently told us After being 35 years sustaining members of our local NPR station in Southern California, we recently relocated back to Arkansas and were happy to move our membership to KUAF. As KUAF approaches the end of our financial year on June 30th, we're marking 50 years on the air by raising $50,000 to keep this essential public service available to newcomers as well as those who are coming back home. Make your gift of support at supportkuaf.com. And good news, we're closing in on our goal of $50,000 for June to support the programming on KUAF. Started today with over $46,000, so just under $4,000 to go. Thank you for your contributions. You can make yours now at supportkuaf.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The National Weather Service is issuing heat advisories for the region from noon until 9 p.m., both today and tomorrow. Highs in the Arkansas River Valley the next two days will reach above 100, with heat index readings topping out at 110. Northwest Arkansas and northeast Oklahoma are expected to have afternoon highs from 96 to just above 100, with heat index values around 105. 
Construction is beginning on a community designed for neurodiverse adults. The groundbreaking was yesterday for a planned 230-acre South Cato Springs mixed-use mixed-income development, as well as future site of SLS Community. SLS is an acronym for Supporting Lifelong Success. SLS Executive Director Ashton McComb says the new development will be a place for neurodiverse adults to flourish. Really, SLS Community will bring together um, housing services, clinical services, and employment opportunities within the South Cato Springs development. So on the housing side, you know, the, the federal SSI rate for neurodivergent individuals with which they rely upon for rent and living expenses is $941 per month. Um, it's just not enough to live on, and so that's going to be a key component is uh, facilitating affordable housing for those folks in these broader neighborhoods that are really open to the rest of Northwest Arkansas. And then a cornerstone aspect of the project is UAMS building a multi-specialty outpatient medical uh, center of excellence that provides uh, you know, a full suite of outpatient services, research component, training component, uh, with special adaptations and accommodations for neurodivergent individuals. The project near Kessler Mountain in Fayetteville is being funded by a $3.48 million infrastructure grant from the city of Fayetteville, along with a $3 million federal community project award appropriated by U.S. Congressman Steve Womack. Neurodivergent is a non-medical term that describes people with autism spectrum disorder or other neurological or developmental conditions. Ashton McCombs is carrying forward the SLS concept initiated by his father, in honor of his sister, diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. His mother, Betts McCombs, who serves as co-founder, spoke at the groundbreaking. Our own family's journey is with our autistic daughter, Anna, who, by the way, is witty, very smart, and beautiful, but she also deals with complex, challenging, and destructive behavior, limiting her in being able to go about her life. The McCombs family is developing SLS as a model where neurodiverse adults live in assisted living quarters as well as single-family and multi-unit housing with access to medical care, vocational training, educational programs, and recreation. Congressman Womack says he thinks the project is special. And while nobody in this audience knows this, I'll just say it. I believe my four-year-old grandson is going to benefit from this campus because it's only been about a year ago that he was diagnosed on the autistic spectrum. Now that predates my involvement in this work so I don't want anybody to think that it was because of a personal connection, it was because it was the right thing to do. In 2022, more than 5.4 million adults in the United States were on the spectrum, according to the first-ever estimates released by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Theater Squared is announcing a leadership change that will take effect this fall. Martin Miller, who has been T2's executive director-producer, will leave after 13 years to become executive director for McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. Board President Todd Simmons will lead an executive transition committee. Miller joined Theater Squared after the conclusion of its third season in 2009. He joins McCarter Theater in Princeton, the theater that staged the original production of Thornton Wilder's Our Town in September. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is ordering flags to be flown at half-staff Friday in honor of the late state Supreme Court Justice Robin Wynn, who died last week. 
Former Arkansas Razorback standout quarterback Ryan Mallett is dead after drowning in Florida yesterday. He was the head football coach for Whitehall High School and played for the University of Arkansas for three years. He was 35. And the organization Bikes for People ranks Fayetteville as the best city in the state for cyclists. The group ranked more than 1,700 cities in the country based on safety, bike access to places people live and work, availability for bike recreation, and more. Fayetteville ranks 234th overall out of 1,733 ranked cities and 79th out of 624 mid-sized cities. Fayetteville's highest scores were for safe access to bike trails and for bike access to major shopping centers. Bella Vista was the second highest ranking city in Arkansas. The full report can be found at cityrankings.peopleforbikes.org. In the 1980s, the scientific consensus on growing old was grim. But with every study, it became clearer that older people were happier in their day-to-day lives on balance than younger people were. How some things in life get better as we age, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Hidden Brain, Saturday afternoon at 3 and Sunday morning at 6 on 91.3 KUAF. This spring and summer, we're meeting a few of the Latino leaders in Northwest Arkansas. These introductions come courtesy of Wendy Echevera and her podcast, Inspirado El Futuro, stories about Latino leaders in Northwest Arkansas. You can hear full episodes of the podcast at KUAF.com. Today, a portion of her installment with Demera Baker. Until earlier this month, Baker led Rockin' Baker, a nonprofit artisanal bakery that was 100% operated by a neurodiverse team. In this excerpt, Wendy takes us on a deep dive into Demera's life. Demera grew up near the northern coast of South America, a country called Venezuela, with her mom, dad, and two brothers. I used to enjoy the seaside every single day, uh, and that's one of the things that maybe the saltiness in the air Uh, The sounds of the wave always reminds me that things can become one day and then suddenly can get really stormy with the wave feeling that they can almost engulf you and take you with that. But then you know that the storm will pass. At a young age, Damara says she learned to be resilient since most of the times she was the only female in the group. That taught me to be strong. Uh, to I always had a, like a strong will, and being around boys uh, taught me how to stand up on my own feet and how to make my point come across because typically, you know, they treat you, you play like a girl, and I always have to prove otherwise that, no, I could also play tough if I wanted to. Thaymana says she always saw herself as an equal and even tasked her brothers to take on some of the work around the house. She believed it was fair. And just because she was a girl didn't mean she was obligated to do all the chores. Being the only girl among two boys, uh, the society tells you that as a woman, you're supposed to do things differently than they do. And I remember at home, I was expected to be doing dishes and doing this one. And I said, no, no, I created my own calendar. I said, he does the dishes at noon and I do it for dinner. At the age of 16, Daimara Baker graduated high school and pursued a degree in engineering. After a year of attending a private college in Venezuela, 
they might have realized engineering was not for her, and she dreamed of studying in the U.S. She says her brother was given the opportunity to study at Cambridge, but two weeks before leaving, he changed his mind and didn't go. That's when Daimara seized her chance. If they were able to offer that opportunity to my brother, I don't see why they cannot offer it to me. I mean, I didn't see any difference between me being a girl and my brother. I mean, for me, we were equal, right? Not knowing anyone, the language, or area, Daimara moved to a small town in Pennsylvania and attended Beaver College. But her time in the U.S. was short. Almost a year that I was going through uh, English uh, as a second language, that's when the, uh, the economy in Latin America fell, and I have to go back home. Venezuela's economy collapsed during the 80s and 90s due to the country's major product, oil. And at that time, government officials made the decision to shut down government programs and funding, which affected a major portion of the population and caused violence and crime to increase. Lifestyle conditions deteriorated as um, the broader um, lack of government spending also began to decline. And that's in part what leads to some of the violence that you're describing, right? So crime begins to increase significantly in the 1980s. You have the rise exponentially of corruption as people are chasing fewer dollars. Um, And of course, there's also less oversight on the part of the state because of all the austerity that's happening. That's Dr. Alejandro Velasco, an associate professor of modern Latin American studies at New York University. Dr. Velasco says the government tried to fix the issues in the 1990s by opening the economy to private investors, but that caused more issues. And so there was a lot of privatization of formerly state-owned industries. There was a lot of decentralization of um, you know, former purviews of the state. Um, and as that was going on, Um, At the same time as austerity was really sort of galloping, what ended up happening was that inequality really just surged massively. The inequality, Dr. Velasco says, fed to more crime and caused political instability. Once back in Venezuela, Daimara Baker began pursuing an associate degree. But the situation in the country was only getting worse to the point that Daimara was faced in a life-threatening situation. She says a man approached her one day with a gun, placed it on her head, and demanded to take her car. When when I had the gun on my head, it was happening uh, very common. Uh, There was a period that it seems to be, I forgot how many car was stolen every day. And it was really leading to her election. Instead of running, screaming, or panicking, Daimara says she could only think about one thing, her right to vote. And I just asked him, I need my purse. And of course, he pressed that gun harder on my head. And I just said, guy, I need my ID. And he said, you woman, you better shut up or I kill you. Why are you going to kill me? I want my ID because I need to vote. Daimara says growing up, she was taught two things, the importance of her right to vote and paying taxes. And with the upcoming elections, Daimara was determined not to back down. When something is not right, I just automatically stand up. And that's exactly what she did. She knew elections were important for a country's future. Unfortunately, Daimara says that wasn't the last time an incident like that happened. 
A few years later, on the first day of an executive leadership management program in an institute in Venezuela, she was put in a similar situation. But the moment Daimara realized her time in Venezuela was up was when an employee at the company she worked at was shot. Fortunately, he wasn't shot on his critical organs or anything, but the bullet went through his arm. And when I saw that one, it was like another, okay, I think too many signs are coming your way. Daimara says she worked to save as much money as she could to return to the U.S. In 1995, she applied for a visa, bought the ticket, and was ready to go. And a week before my time of departure, the currency was devaluated a week and a half before that. So I lost overnight over 62% of my savings. Daimara was unsure of how long she could afford to stay in the U.S. because nearly 50% of her hardworking money was gone. But she was not going to let that stop her. I just going to get on the plane and see what happens. And then if I run out of money, I just go back and try everything again. I mean, that's all what I can do. Daimara was an international student and did not qualify for financial aid. So she moved to Monticello, Arkansas, where it was more affordable to attend the University of Arkansas. She says the small community was beneficial because it allowed her to focus on improving her new language, English. Two years later, Damaria says she was delighted to be accepted into the NBA program at the university's main campus in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Daimara graduated in 1999 and worked in marketing. And more than a decade later, a new dream emerged. That's when this movie began playing on my head of what I could do. And it was this place that at that moment, it was really focusing on helping women out of jail get the uh, work experience for them to rejoin society so that they didn't have to go back. And this video was so vivid in my head that I felt that I really have to do it. Thus, Rocking Baker was born, a local bakery created to empower individuals in Northwest Arkansas. Latinas owning businesses may seem unique, but it's not. In 2016, the National Women's Business Council stated that Hispanic women owned almost 2 million businesses in the U.S. There's so much data there that Latinas are launching more companies than anyone else in this country, sometimes by choice, many times by necessity. That's Beatrice Acevedo, CEO and founder of SUMA. SUMA is a digital platform created to empower and educate Latinos and Latinas on building wealth. Beatrice says Latina-owned businesses are vital to the country. Already, without any resources, uh, without any support, without very little, with very little access, Latinas are already um, contributing tremendously to the U.S. economy, employing other, not just Latinos or Latinas, but other people in their communities. Um, so obviously, supporting them would only boost that in the benefit of all Americans. It's not just just for Latinas. The numbers are so high within our community. Um, they're only going to continue to grow, as you know. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 2020, Hispanic-owned businesses employed about 2.9 million people in the country and provided more than $470 billion in annual receipts. And you can hear this entire episode of Inspirado El Futuro, stories about Latina leaders in Northwest Arkansas, 
at KUAF.com. Wendy Echeverra's conversation with Demera Baker took place before Rock and Baker closed its doors on June 3rd. This is Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. New music now, recorded with the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas. It's for their first full-length album release. Trevor News Composition Cohere One considers distance and collaboration. It's part of Sona's first album, released earlier this month. It's called New Canons. The recording of Cohere One included musicians performing not just in Northwest Arkansas, but around the world, using digital connections, three quartets in separate locations, and six soloists performing together on different continents. Sona recorded the work at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in 2022, and a live performance of Cohere One was part of the New Canons concert at Walton Art Center in Fayetteville earlier this spring. Last week, I spoke with Trevor New. We talked about the composition and about the recording. What ends up happening to me is I think about, one, how far away everybody is, and then maybe in some cases, maybe how far away everybody is is coming in from their homes, because sometimes, you know, the uh, was the quartet in London, they were, they were playing from a church in some cases, or in a studio, or at a friend's house who has better internet, um, and you know, just I, I, I guess I end up thinking about points of connection and how seemingly challenging it, it is for all of those things to happen and how much has to line up in order for it to actually be there. Uh, so I end up, you know, I end up feeling a, a tremendous appreciation and respect every time we stop and there's silence and then everybody comes back in. It's like, what's what's going to happen? <laughs> I I want to talk about the music, but let's talk about the process of getting ready to perform. What does that take? Um, The coordinating different time zones. So across all the the various continents and uh, getting everybody familiar with what they're going to be seeing and hearing, what they're going to experience. Um, making sure they understand that what they experience is going to be different from everybody else. Uh, so the piece is coming together in every different way at every point of, of connection. And uh, th- thinking about that, I, I, I guess in a way informed, uh, informed the writing in a sense, because like if you think about uh, like Mozart might take a piece of music and you like you you know you write just a, a page of music and then you could take that same page copy it flip it upside down and then it would those two would be in harmony for example mm. kind of like an anagram of uh pieces and that's a little bit of what has to happen 
with the score for this piece too is it has to work at each beat in a way uh and 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 then some uh you know selecting uh selecting and feeling you know the uh the pace of different different points um you know stopping an ambient section and then moving to something that's a very strictly rhythmic uh thing with with the recording uh i didn't move anybody's timing with any <laughs> any of the stuff it is it is as it is playing everybody is playing as it's happening exactly from where they are um in that way i love the 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 moments of silence where there is the beat before something else begins and i'm guessing i'm assuming that that is in the score like i i think about seven and a half minutes into the piece there's a pause Then the music continues. And then something different begins. I'm guessing that's part of the score, right? Take that beat, have that silence. Yes. It's interesting uh, in at different points in time uh, and the conductor has a, a little bit to coordinate with this is different points in time different people are leading the orchestra or leading the quartets or leading the virtual players or even leading me I'm, I'm following in, in, in different moments uh, so it's this very much like symbiotic relationship depending on where you are and uh, you know, as a musician, you expect it's like, okay, I'm super confident here, here I am. And, you know, after doing it a, a few times, uh, you know, in rehearsal, uh, becomes, you know, becomes second nature. And then we, we end up kind of sinking into this. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm pretty happy with the piece myself. <laughs> like in, in that sense, we end up sinking into this uh, uh, kind of enjoyable uh, sort of celebratory thing of saying uh sonically saying hello and uh greeting each other The performance is roughly 12 minutes, about a dozen minutes. Um, it feels sweeping. It feels epic. It feels as if listeners are being taken on this sort of grand narrative. Is that is are any of those adjectives something that you wanted to have connected to it? Um, I I like those, and 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 yes, that was the and <laughs> uh, and and many of the the spaces we are kind of going around the ensembles and going to the the different parts of the world uh sometimes playing as you know playing traditional instruments and then uh 
the further we go into the piece, it expands out further to uh, instruments from a wide variety of uh, traditions and, uh, you know, different approaches to playing. Uh, yeah, so we start in one place and it just kind of... But to me, to my ears, it's never jarring. It seems like this is a progression that you've taken us on purposely, and it all makes, again, to my ears, um, musical sense. Thank you. Yeah, there's there's a fair amount of, uh, of math happening in some places to, to make sure that uh, whatever, no matter what's happening, it makes makes sense. And then also using some of the more common... Uh, musical practices and classical music, for for example, uh, when you're moving through uh, something that is, say, technically, we'll, we'll say reminiscent of Brahms or uh, or some kind of uh, romantic composer, like when we when string players have this line, they do this this way, and then when it's like this, we tend to do this this way, and I try to play into that in a lot of moments. And then maybe sprinkle something in on top that's like maybe a little different. We should explain to listeners where all of the moving parts were for the performance. What did it look like, and where was everybody? So, uh, so I was, you know, in person in uh, in Arkansas with with Sona, and then our uh, remote or virtual—I like to say network participants because we all have our own spaces. Uh, we're coming in from. Uh, well, New York City and uh, Brooklyn, uh, London, two places in London, uh, Los Angeles, Berlin, Germany, Argentina, Buenos Aires, uh, Kolkata, India, uh, Uganda, uh, and Korea. Kind of gives me goosebumps to think about that, to hear that list. It's it's pretty exciting, um, and it's it's uh, it's quite an experience to um, also you know just taking the sound of the spaces that everybody's in and having that combine into what the piece becomes because it's going to be different every time, and sometimes it's the middle of the night <laughs> or it's the middle of the day for everybody uh, who's participating. For a listener who you know didn't see it performed live or comes to it perhaps not knowing how this all worked it still works though and that that's important right i mean to not have necessarily the backstory but still hear the piece and be moved right that was i mean that was one of those things uh in exploring the the different approaches um to do something like this i mean a, a big question too is you know why why do this versus just play the, the way we've we've usually play and and you know kind of creating these connections and what happens uh when we do that musically i was i was really surprised there's a thing that happens with that because the the space changes so that that sort of uh discovery was was really cool and then you know to your point it it needs to be uh it's not a a, a gimmick really it's as, not novelty as it goes right yeah as that goes and it it uh that that was also a, a nice surprise that that it's like oh we can we can recreate parts of this and just like with any live performance it will be different and um yeah it, it, it it's uh it's a really exhilarating thing as it is somewhat challenging sometimes i feel like i'm 
getting much better at it and much more comfortable, <laughs> of course. Trevor New is a composer and violist. He talked with us last week by Zoom from Brooklyn. His composition, Cohere One, is included on the new Sona album, New Canons. And that album can be heard through all major online music outlets. This is Ozarks at Large. Time for our big fish story. A new mural nearing completion in Bentonville features two big fish, oversized smallmouth bass, titled Lakes and Rivers. It represents the region's outdoor recreation industry. And it is big. The largest fish is 93 feet long. Both of them covered in more than 260,000 shine discs that will catch the light differently each hour and each day. This week, I talked with the man who created the work, artist and designer Stefan Sagemeister. Ben, I you know, got the first photos of that wall, it became very clear that it's a very large, very newly built concrete wall. And the question was what to do on that wall. And uh, I myself, and I'm, I'm sure not everybody agrees, happen to like visible concrete. You know, I think that um, uh, I quite, I quite enjoy the material. It's, I find it absolutely amazing. I'm a big fan, like one of my favorite buildings in the world is the Pantheon that I think in, for, for which concrete was actually invented for that gigantic dome. So I'm, a, I'm somewhat of a fan and in some ways looked for an idea that didn't mean that we have to paint that entire concrete over. And hopefully one that would contrast nicely with it. Do you look at it and then sort of let your mind wander? Do you purposefully look at the wall and think this could work? Does it come to you in stages? This one, I have to admit, was a difficult one. Like there are just some projects where uh, things tend to come quickly and this was not uh and i was stuck actually longish uh to the point where i had to go down a route that i really only go down when absolutely nothing else works uh i tried you know like i've been doing this for decades so throughout this many, many, many years where I was a designer, you accumulate certain techniques because you cannot wait until inspiration hits you out of the blue. You know, uh, I've always loved this quote by Duke Ellington. Uh, uh, I don't care for inspiration. I care for deadlines. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> and... Uh, in this case, uh, we had agreed on a on a on a on a on a day when I would show a presentation of this of what I had in mind, and this day would come closer. And I still didn't have. I mean, of course, I had many ideas, but none of them that I was really happy with. And so 
what I resorted to, which really I didn't have to resort to in a couple of years, I think, was that I took a bunch of index cards, there must have been maybe a hundred, and I wrote down every single thought I had about that wall on a separate index card. And I would, uh, I think I must have filled out 70, 80, 90 of these cards. I still have them somewhere. And then I went downstairs on a very large table and I put all of these cards on the table and I tried to see if there were any kind of relations between any of these thoughts. And I did that a couple of times and then immediately tried to forget about the whole thing. But this intense involvement with the subject normally, and also in this case, leads to an idea when I start not thinking about it. And it uh, luckily, luckily, luckily also yielded an idea there. And I have to say the idea that it yielded, I wasn't 100% sure about until we got in and there uh, I worked with a designer I've worked with many times before until I got in the physics animation. Because just the sketching the book where I thought, okay, this could be, you know, stainless steel pellets and I was aware how they look and I was aware how they move in the wind, but uh, I wasn't quite convinced that the contrast would work. And so once I got the physics in, I thought, okay, no, this is very, very much likely to work. Is there a difference for you if you are creating something that will be handheld, perhaps a box set, mm -hmm. versus something that will be seen from several hundred feet away? Well, in my case, I would make another differentiation. Okay. I really think that this is design, where in, in as far, for one thing, I'm a designer, that's where I come from, that's my education. Uh, but also that I ultimately see some sort of functionality in there. You know, I would say that if you make a, a very rough division between the two, design has to function, art does not, it can just be. This moral, I wanted to do something. I wanted to have at least an aspect of information as in people are getting more delight out of nature, out of using rivers and, and lakes. Uh, so I want, like, I very purposefully have a message in there. That it's not meaning like, at the same time, it's somewhere in between, like we don't, you know, I could have elected to write that message in big words underneath those fishes. But I think that uh, I want that to only come as a second thing if somebody wants to inform themselves, we, we might do a little plaque small somewhere on the on the on the wall, uh, because the first thing, if you interpret the, those two fishes in a different way, be my guest. You know, like uh, that's totally open. Uh, and in a, from a, a more specific answer to your question, yes, I, I do think that there is a, that, that is different. Uh, 
in a way that, let's say, if I design an album cover, mm -hmm. it really is all about visualizing that music. I want to basically visualize something that is inherently emotional, but not visual. And in this case, it's much more open. It's basically, I mean, we talked about, oh, it would be nice if it has something to do with rivers or water or, or in that way, but ultimately can be anything. I mean, we could have, I mean, and many of the other ideas that I had sketched out, you know, had, you know, the whole wall painted and it had some realism in there. And, you know, it was a, there were some other totally different directions uh, uh, on the table. And of course, this one, I think you would, it would have to work very quickly because people will drive by in a car, they might walk by, and you would want it to work on those different levels. So I would want it to have some sort of visual memory for somebody who literally races by it on a motorcycle. And at the same time, if you slowly walk by it, you would also want it to have enough of a visual interest that it holds your eye. Stefan Sagemeister, the artist behind the nearly completed mural Lakes and Rivers in downtown Bentonville, speaking with me from his New York City apartment via Zoom earlier this week. The mural located near the ledger in Bentonville. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Alma, and Marble Falls. Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith and Wendy Echeverria. Jacqueline Froehlich provided the sounds and words about yesterday's SLS groundbreaking. Additional material today came from the news staff of KUAR. Our listening lab coordinator at KUAF is Emerson Alexander. We are back tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. with a Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for being here. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Diego Rivera's America, the first major exhibition focused solely on the Mexican artist in over 20 years. It features his works, digital projections of his murals, and three major paintings by Frida Kahlo. On view now through July 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org.